Welcome to the Reads with Rosa podcast. On this week's show, we have a champion for Moana Pacific Education. She is an academic scholar, an educator, a musician and composer, and she is an inspirational role model for not only Samoan, but Pacific women everywhere. I'm uh, born in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, Greyland to be specific, uh, raised there, but also went to school out in West Auckland, so a bit of a central west back and forth um, thing, and um, yep, Samoan, and yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell about me, and we will talk more about myself as we go. <laughs> Man, thank you, Ayono. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm nervous, but I'm so happy to have you on the show, man. I feel like we have so much to talk about. How are we going to fit everything in in this in this small, uh, you know, small time? But um, I guess I guess good place to start is um, church. <laughs> you know, ifakasa. Um, I think that's where we met is is through church. Like, what was your upbringing like? I know. Um, you were the Faye so obviously, I mean, yeah, what was that like for you growing up in the Efakasa? Yeah, I think if I go back first to when we first met, it would have been um, at Graham Park at Scarlet's <laughs> you know, Games, and I think that's where we kind of met a lot of our Efakas ethics friends growing up, um, and then when we met later in life, we're like, hey, you used to wear <laughs> Henderson I think I might have said to you, hey, aren't you the baton? <laughs> the baton girl? <laughs> remind me, I remember that year. Um, it was the year that um, our church uh, debuted with our awesome brass band. And um, I, I was one of the few girls in the fighty ball at the time. And um, I don't know whose bright idea it was, probably my dad's. Um, I remember being the, the baton twirling girl coming down you know, and it was just this, this is really long wooden stick wrapped in red tape with um, silver tinsel attached to the top. And I remember going down the, the drive like this, <laughs> down, you know, going on to Greenham Park. You know, at, you know, at the time it was just like, so when you're talking about, talking about growing up in ethics, it's, um, I think, you know, um, my, my dad, you know, at the time when they, when they migrated here in, in 72, um, his, his explanation to me is that, he didn't really find um, church mamalo at the time, so he wanted to go to a Samoan-speaking church. You know, he just felt that he couldn't praise God in English. It was a second language, and uh, mum was reluctant at the time because she had an aunt who, um, her her uncle, her mother, her auntie's uh, husband was a lay preacher at, at PIC Newton at the time. So when they first came over, it was like you had to stay there and, and go to church with them, but. My dad was insistent, no, no, we're going to go to a Samoan-speaking church. So that that started the journey um, for us at Ifakasa. And then I was born into the church um, five years after they migrated here. Um, but growing up ethics, I think, without having that solid foundation in Ifakasa, being, you know, um, a Samoan-speaking church, I wouldn't be able to speak Samoan now, I think, as an adult. And, you know, moving through church, you know, you know, even back then, um, the competitions to come first day to Sili in class, oh, the, the struggle was real. Um, <laughs> I think um, my father was just really strict on that. You know, we used to do, remember, you know, dictation, and he used to sit there, read Bible passages, and, you know, that's how I learned about grammar and punctuation, and I think that's what translated into my love of, of writing and reading um, into mainstream kind of Balangi um, schooling was because of dad's insistence, like, mm. 
coma. You know, I just remember writing all this stuff down. Um, yeah, so it's funny, you know, because when you think about going to school, um, I think teachers thought at the time that they taught you all that stuff, not knowing, no, 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 we learnt this stuff at home. And we just happened to transfer that to school. So, um, yeah, you know, going through Sunday school, being in the, in the choir at a young age, I had a love of singing. Um, I remember my parents, you know, I was probably like five or six at the time, and I'd be running around in the church, you know, down the aisles as, as kids do. And I remember quite vividly my dad singing bass at the back of the of the choir, and I would sit behind him and sing along, but sing the tune. And um, I think he was quite surprised, man, you picked that up pretty quick. And, you know, it's just being surrounded by by music and sound and, um, yeah, just worship for God was, it, it's a, it was instilled in me from a very young age. Um, yeah, so from Sunday school, uh, being a choir, uh, being a youth group, and then becoming a, a kiakongo myself. And and that was quite a nerve-wracking experience. I, that was something I didn't want at the time because um, it was very new, very foreign to me. And mm. just the level of responsibility, I thought, was quite um, quite hectic and, um, yeah, just quite heavy, I think, at that young age. But um, it was something that I my minister at the time, um, you know, Yurita uh, Natanielo, you know, he was he was for Fiatuina before he retired, and you know he just pulled me aside and said, you know, you've served in our church, what's our tour, and um, you know this is, it's not a, it's not that it's a reward, but it's a recognition of 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 your service to church, and and I think this is something that that God would want to anoint you with, um, so that it will steer you, you know, so you know he had the words right, he had the words. <laughs> He's right here. He's like, in the fields. I went, okay, tomorrow. All right, then, you know. And, you know, growing up in the Samoan church, it's all about Ustai and Fa'alualo and Loto, you know, Maulalo, Angamalo, all those kinds of attributes of what it means, you know, Amiopulia. You know, when you think about FX games, we, you know, we were there to compete, eh? Win at cricket, win at volley, win at athletics. You know, I have so many vivid, fun memories of, you know, laughing at people tripping up on, on the track, you know, when we have our relays or um, things like that. And um, marching was one of those things. But, yeah, it's just, you know, really fun memories of that time. Um, yeah, can't say enough about growing up FXA. Yeah, it's right. a challenge. It's not an easy life, but, um, yeah, you know, it's you have to take the what the perceived bad with the good, you know. And I mm-hmm. think when, when we see as young people the, the kind of negative things about Ifakasa, we it comes from a place... Um, because of uh, young people feeling as if they don't have a say in, mm. in the structure or or how things are carried out. So I think that's where that frustration comes from for a lot of the, um, you know, second, third, fourth generation of ethics um, people grew up, you know, worldwide, globally. Have a year. And you, so, you know, in terms of music, um, when did you start playing for church? You know, when did you start playing piano? Was it in school that you learned music or was it within your church like did you just take lessons from someone in the church or yeah so my my music um learning journey was pretty funny i i remember i went to glendine school and in the school newsletter you know as i said before because i love to read and the school newsletter had this announcement that there was a local piano teacher and i remember going home when i was started for um year six for those of you uh, in the current new zealand education system um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I remember going home and showing that newsletter to my dad and saying, Dad, I want to um, I want to take lessons. Mm-hmm. And so the woman was like this um, Hare Krishna woman from the community. Um, and I remember at the time, um, I read this Leila Fletcher book one. And 
I think as I started learning with her, I realized, hang on, this lady's holding me back. Um, because yeah. I remember I was one of those kids where if I learned the song and I knew I was confident that I'd learned it, I'm ready to move on to the next one. But she kept giving me the same song every week. I went, hang on, I really played that. Like what, you know? Um, so that was standard four. But when we moved back to um, Grey Lynn, I actually learned uh, piano properly when I was third form, mm-hmm. uh, year nine, uh, New Zealand time. Um, but it took me from February of my third form year to, I debuted playing for church for Lokomiki in October that year. And that's because I had my mother come with me to lessons and she'd always sit in the corner and, you know, give me the eyes while I'm learning um, at my lessons. And yeah, so I actually took private lessons um, and because I showed an aptitude for it and it was a gifting because I, I probably learned like four years worth of piano, but probably one, grade one to grade four, didn't do any exams at that point. But I went, I remember going from grade one to grade four books in that first year. And that's because my my parents kind of really strict um, expectations around learning piano. And once they could see I was into it, they were like really um, pushing me to to do well in it. Um, Yes, I I can say that I started playing for church from, yeah, just within those those months of that year um, and haven't stopped playing since, to be honest. Um, Yeah. Man, you know, um, in school, were you involved in the performing arts? Um, you know, as a musician, were you in any of the productions? Like, what was school life for you as a muser? As a muser, I remember um, because we had a church brass band, and that's what prompted me to learn trumpet. So, Dad had this master idea that all of the kids in the family would learn a brass instrument. So, we actually created our own family brass ensemble. <laughs> I was like, Dad, we could go make some money and go busking. <laughs> So was, he deliberately made me learn uh, trumpet. My younger brother learned cornet. Uh, and the funny thing about trumpet is there is no trumpet in a brass band, a traditional yeah. English brass band. It's supposed to be cornets. Um, it's a soprano cornet, which is E flat, and um, other cornets are B flat trumpet. Yeah, cornet. Um, you know, so first cornet, second cornet. So it's all ranked by, um, you know, your level of ability of playing. So normally if you're first whatever, those are the higher notes, the melody that you play. And then second, it was like, oh, okay, harmony levels. If you're like third or fourth, whatever, yeah, never mind. That means you're pretty useless. <laughs> and that means you're smart. And um, I've always, I was always like first, whatever. But that's because of the parents kind of instilling in you that they want you to be the best. So I was like all the time practicing scales and things like that. So yeah, I was in um, our church brass band. And that was because, you know, so I learned um, trumpet at school through the itinerant music system. And um, I was in like, well, the only time I was in productions was I was the musician in the production. So I was either playing, you know, support keyboards or um, playing playing trumpet for the for the um, production band. Um, I wasn't allowed to do drama. I wanted to do drama because I thought I was naturally good at it. And right. my parents were like, shh, well, I like drama. And I go, true, <laughs> have enough drama. Um, so I'm going to do that. But, you know, White Sunday was the time to, to showcase our performing arts skills. Eh? And um, I just thought at the time, oh, I should take drama. It's, you know, easy. <laughs> to pass this like uh, already natural actress um but yeah so all of that music learning through school was in concert band brass band um what are the other things brass ensemble for school but also orchestra um even got to a point you know i used to laugh i laugh now at the time all my other friends were like you know playing sports and doing um we're reps for auckland and and you know national reps in their, in their chosen code what was i i was um I was Auckland rep being a first trumpet and principal trumpet. And, 
Auckland Secondary School's orchestra race. So I, used to, I laugh now as an adult, but at the time I thought it was like really cool, but scary, you know, because we're one of the few brown girls in yeah. this orchestra. Um, and these were these were kids from schools, you know, elite schools, you know, St. Mm. Cuthbert's and, um, you know, all the schools that featured in that show, it's academic, you know, welcome yeah. to Rosemary College. <laughs> you know, schools like that. And you've got these three bongers from eggs turn up and, <laughs> You know, I was in the trumpet section. Another another one of the mates was in the viola section, um, and the other one was um, in the oboe section. So, yeah, I just remember at the time feeling pretty isolated, but proud, but also pretty staunch. You know, I was seventh form at the time, um, year thirteen, and at the time at eggs, you know, we had we had mufti, so no uniform. So I used to rock up in whatever gears was fashionable at the time. You know, bomber jackets and denim jackets, stuff like that. And and in my section of other other trumpet players, that look at me like as if I didn't know and I used to sit there and go what are you looking at look at your music <laughs> I was that kind of person really like, at 17 years old really super confident and just didn't take any crap from anyone and I sometimes mm. reminisce about that girl and go man where did she go um, <laughs> but yeah that level of confidence say eh? it's like yeah I missed that at 17 years old I like you um just a little while back you mentioned mum and dad and how you know always pushing you to be the best, encouraging you to be the best. Like, how has, you know, looking back now and thinking about that, like, man, you know, I know a lot of our kids, you know, when I was teaching there, it's hard to find that confidence. It's hard to, some kids don't have that support. But, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm like, man, you're such a go-getter. And, and just how much of that came from mum and dad like did dad play in a brass band or you know was mum um a musician like where where did they get their confidence from that they passed on to you as you know as people who you know parents they moved to new zealand it's a new place trying to establish themselves where did they get their confidence that they obviously passed on to you and your brothers yeah like, it's funny that you say, you know, like, oh, you know, you're such a go-getter. Okay, for me, when I heard that phrase, I was like, yeah, I better go get it, otherwise I'll go get a hiding, you know? So there's <laughs> a definitely more fear, you know? Like, I used to laugh growing up in church because, you know, I had other, you know, girlfriends growing up going, you know, we hated you at church? I mean, what? You know, it did oblivious say, and then I go, what do you mean? They go, oh, because we'd go home and our parents would go, vai, vai ya manu, vai ya manu file more late, or vai ya manu is silly to sing you know, it's like, yeah. guys. I didn't do that to compete with you. I did that right, for right. self-preservation out of fear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's, that's, that's just my, that was my mentality as a kid was like my mission was to grow up, make my parents proud and do well. And, you know, so that they could, you know, if people go, um, you know, so it was always, um, I was always aware of the fact that I was a, a physical extension of my parents and, when you asked about, you know, where did I get that from? And my dad wasn't in the brass band. He he learned how to play music in Samoa. He learned how to read. He learned how to play. So he was actually a a kalaau. He calls himself a faipese, but oh, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I teach pieces, I'm like, mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, he actually um, learned from um, you know Al Semiapati's dad. So Al Semiapati is a is a lawyer, or yes, I think it was a judge here in New Zealand, and his mm. His daughter Tiana was um, the the recent um, president of the New Zealand Law Society, I think. But you know, she's another ex ex girl as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, Dad learned how to play and read music from his father. Um, so he would go from the village and go and take lessons and 
come back to the village. And yes, because I think for some period of his life, dad stayed at the Faith Alice house growing up in, in Fuskooka. So he was very mm. familiar with um, ethics life. And, you know, I think that's what he installed in us when he came here. He wanted to replicate that same same level of service and mm. uh, war, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and mum, you know, sung in church choirs and and mum actually tells stories of, you know, she she grew up in a finger, born in Masinga Whangaloa, but her father died when she was six. So she was kind of shipped around looking after other people's kids and other cousins. And um, But when she told me that she um, settled in a finger because um, she would go and, because that's where her mother was based um, after the her, her dad died, you know, her her mother remarried and settled with someone in a finger. So she talks a lot about, you know, she used to, when they used to have Evango de Bo, she would play ukulele, you know, play her wow. uke and, and play. So um, mum has that kind of playing. Dad's more in the piano um, kind of playing for church area. So I think music's always been there and it's been encouraged. And I remember my older brothers would learn and then they kind of didn't continue um, you know, for different reasons. The, the eldest one was, you know, he, he lied and told my parents, oh, yeah, he's he's learning guitar, but really he just didn't want to learn anymore. And the second <laughs> one, you know, we didn't have an instrument at the time, you know, so um, he had nothing to practice on. And so when it, when I expressed an interest in being the only girl in the family, it was, okay, let's let's see where this goes. And um, yeah, the rest is kind of history, yeah. Do you have a favourite uh, Ifakasa hymn? Jeez, my uh, favorite hymn or a go-to piece. Um... That's pretty, that's a really big question, eh? It's a hard one, and and I'll tell you why it's hard to answer. And it's because, um, you know, even though like Bessie Evil work, you know, is in my mind, and that's because it's a, for me, it's the lyrics because there's so many tunes to that song. But I love the lyrics because it's a really easy way of you know thanking God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, and I think. Um, if you're, if you're able to, to keep that, I guess, as a mantra through the day when you're going through things, not just in times of Thanksgiving, but, you know, even through the struggles that you go through, you know, still think of those mm. lyrics. And probably 225 is a good one too when you're going through struggles. Uh, so, mm. so all of us, are, you know, count your blessings. And I always think about that when I'm going through something pretty tough, mm. you know, and you're, it's very easy to get sucked into the negative side of things. But if you keep, you know, you know, just keep 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 Jesus in your mind and keep thinking about the cool things that you have in your life rather than fixating on the negative. Yeah. You know, uh, in terms of creative process as a as a muso as a faithbesser as a musician, um, what's your writing process like? Um, in terms of you know, like sitting down and 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 thinking about a a new song. I mean. Obviously, we're going to get to the other parts of your life right now. You are super busy, like. You have so many things going on. So I guess the question should then be, do you get time to write these days? And if so, what is that process like for you? Yeah. Um, there was a period of my life where I was writing quite consistently. And um, I think it was when I first joined our kind of Alfred Bessitele um, at, at church. And because I was kind of new, this is probably around 90, 97, 98 um, and I, this is when I was just about to graduate with my with my Bachelor of Music degree from Auckland University, and that was in musicology. Um, but it was, you know, getting the time to write now, it's it's really hard to find the time. Um, but I am, I have, I have do have some projects I'm working on just myself. Um, I've always, and I've told a couple of people about the day, just like, there's two kuspese that I want to write. One is um, my own kind of kuspese, 
with all my original music set to, you know, our FFSR text of all that different hymns. So that, that's one project then. I've got probably about 10, 10 hymns, you know. For me, that was always going to be a retirement project. Um, mm. But I feel that I just need to kind of chip away at it as I, as I can and try and notate those things. I'm an old school writer where I hate music notation programs. Um, those things came into effect after I left high school. Um, but, yeah, I find it really really cumbersome to try and get in there and, you know, type on a computer, whereas it's faster for me just to write it by hand. So, um, but I'm finding that I have to kind of um, get up to speed and, and use technology, I guess. Um, yeah. And the second project that I'm working on is, you know, all of the best that we that we um, sing at, you know, local ainga, you know, when you have, and there's lots of old tunes, but there's no music for it. So I want to sit down and um, I'll probably test my, not test my parents, it's the wrong word. It's more like sit them down and say, when we when we sing, when you see, when you hear this hymn or that number, what tune comes into your mind? So I want to get the, the the immediate you know response tunes, and then those are the ones that I'll notate um, and put that down. So yeah, that's my other project that I'm working on. Um, but I, I guess in, in finding time to write, it's more to do with um, lately. It's inspiration. Mm. So when I, in terms of my writing process, if I have a tune in my head, what I'll do is um, do this Mariah Carey styles and record mm-hmm. my singing the melody. So, because <laughs> for me and my creative process, man, I forget stuff easily because it's very new and I have to keep. So if I've got a really cool motif in my head, I'll sing it to myself on my phone um, and then just try and get the, usually the melody comes first for me and then I'll refine the rhythm. Then I'll I'll look at um, some lyrics in a, in a, in a Gusbesi and think about, what what text would um would speak to this melody you know so sometimes the melody for me comes first other times i might look at the lyrics and someone might say oh can i have music for this hymn and then i'll look at the hymn and the lyrics and then think about uh, a melody that will kind of amplify and elevate those lyrics so you know for me there's always things like if it's something about liatua normally it's the, the music might tend to start and then go kind of towards you know go mm. high kind of you know so it's depending on you try and use all these kind of techniques and, you know, I taught music at school, eh, at high school. Right, right. So, you know, you're using those kinds of things that you call compositional devices, you know, um, <laughs> like using things like repetition or sequence, right. all of those kinds of things, um, those ideas. So very lucky in that, you know, because I've taught it, I've learned that stuff through, you know, the mainstream Western system. I'm able to pick and choose and be quite selective with the processes that I come up with. Um, yeah. So there's different, it depends on, the situation, eh? So um, if I'm compelled or I feel the need to write something, I'll go and write it. If mm. um, someone's asked for it, I've been commissioned to do something, I'll write that too. Um, but I guess it's just preparing your mind and to be in that space, that creative space. And um, and if you can't write, go do something else, distract mm. yourself and then come back. But yeah, I always find I try and write and let it flow. Sometimes the writing process takes me over. I have no control over that. Um, but other times I have to really, depending if there's a deadline then I, and, and I'm struggling with it, I have to try and just like squeeze it out of myself. So, yeah, it just depends really. And so have you written uh, any, I mean, you don't have to name names, but have you written for any artists like in New Zealand or even overseas? Yeah, so there's two that come to mind. One is um, Sammy Atoa. Um, he, he released a song called Sawya Sunga. And I wrote the, yeah, I wrote the lyrics and the, the melody for that song and he took it away and did his own arrangement of it, you know. So he's a cousin growing up. He's uh, related mm-hmm. to my mum. 
um, have mad love for him. So yeah, I'm glad that he did that. And it was really interesting to see, you know, the addition of a rap and um, just the different vibe to it, you know, because when I wrote that, it was a, it was meant to be a, a ballad. And it comes <laughs> out like real, like, whoa, sorry about this, you know, but it, I loved it though. It was really cool. Um, but yeah, um, and of course the second artist is um, Metitilani, uh, oh, you know, Sophia Lissa, um, you know, better known to everybody is Lani Alo. Um, and I think um, having having him in, in my life where I was able to just kind of be a, be a, a mentor, I guess, along the way in his journey, um, but just, yeah, just in his first uh, release of um, Aloe Favor, you know, being blessed with that opportunity to, to listen to early kind of versions of the track and just giving some feedback, feedback about, oh, have, you, have you thought about this or what about that, you know, so, and seeing that, you know, go off as a, as a global hit, you know, so proud, immensely proud of him, you know, your brother's someone that when I see him um, succeed, I'm like, yes, you know, always real super proud, um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have memories of coming to your house and you like, you know, because I don't know if it was this finger or something like he's not like the teaching him like piano. And so I have memories. <laughs> I have memories of that. And it just it's always like, man, it's just, yeah, like he, you're definitely like, yeah, a mentor and someone he respects and loves and looks up to like so much. So it's. it's <laughs> Yeah, his success is our success there, you know. So yeah, always have mad love for Lani. Um and even your dad used to come to bring him to lessons as well. And you know, so I'd be having a lesson with Lani and then you know, he's chatting with my dad in the kitchen, having a boogie and gas bagging about I don't know, you fuck us up politics, who knows? But um, <laughs> you know, there's still a lot of stuff, but yeah, you know, real family oriented eh? and um yeah, just really, just really proud of Lani. You know, uh, you mentioned being a music teacher. Um, what were some of the highlights? Um, I know when people talk about teaching, it's like, oh, what were some of the challenges? What were the difficult things? But man, you know, teaching uh, every day is different. And so when you reflect on uh, your years as a music teacher in the high school, um, what are some of the highlights from that time for you? It's, it's definitely the whole thing of... Um... I think when students came into music, well, first of all, when I started at the, the last school I taught at, you know, it's a West Auckland High School, not very many brown teachers were employed. Mm. Um, and I don't know whether that, that, that wasn't a, a criticism of the school. It was more to do with just whoever applied, you know, and who they appointed in those positions. And um, I came into the school as, as the new head of music. It was, yeah, and um, I was going to be the sole music teacher. And mm. I think for a lot of the kids that came through the school, they haven't had many brown teachers at the time. So I remember vividly when you ask, what's your memory? I remember turning around in a junior class to, to introduce myself to the class and just the looks of the kids' faces like, who's this fob teaching? We're <laughs> 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 like pulling tussy to work, you know, just trying to affirm my cultural yeah. identity. Like, you know, this is my power seat, man. I'll come and ring this stuff. And um, my memory, I guess, um, to reaching out to those island kids in the class and the Māori students, they were just really happy to, whoa, they were buzzing out, oh, there's a brown person there in front of the class. And it was a real cool opportunity to inject some of our own music and to really help them to make sense of things. And even our European students, um, some of the cool memories with them would be, you know, they were into like death metal um, <laughs> music, of course, that music I'm not into, but as a teacher, I found that it was my mission to to learn about the music styles and genres that my students were into mm -hmm. as a kind of a, a, a connection point 
And then after that, I was able to then teach them the boring stuff that even I found boring, but it was important for them to learn because that's what the curriculum said. That, that's what they needed to be tested on. So there's a lot of negotiation with students. Like, hey, you think I like doing this stuff? I'm just good at it because I had to learn it, but I want to be able to, I used to, you know, craft really shortcut ways mm. to, to really help them to understand things better. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of fun times, you know. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I don't like the thing. One of the challenges, uh, every every job is a challenge, but mm. it's how you respond to it and deal with um, what's the outcome that we want. So for me mm. as a teacher, it was always, I want the kids to enjoy music as much as I do. Mm. Yeah. That, that was the bottom line. Yeah, that was the, and that was the easiest mantra for me to stick to. It wasn't, mm. I want kids to be successful in music. It was, I just want them to enjoy it as much as I do. Because if, if they can do that, then I know it's going to be a lifelong passion for them. That was the main mission. Yeah. Right. So then when did you decide, or I guess what happened um, to make, okay, not what happened, but when did you decide to move away from, you know, teaching at a high school um, mm. and I guess starting the next chapter of right. your, your, your life as an educator, because you didn't stop. I mean, you are still an educator. Um, yeah. Like what prompted you to, to make that move yeah um i think when i was teaching um i became pretty pretty active in our in our teacher union so in secondary school the in new zealand the teacher union is uh nz ppta post primary teachers association so i was um when i joined the union i became quickly involved in the committee pacifica which is the kind of pacific arm of of ppta and that committee um, is that process was you had to be nominated and there were elections. So once I was elected onto that, I became like the Auckland kind of Northern rep. And that kind of afforded me um, introduction into workplace rights, learning more about the system of teaching and where education, especially secondary education at the time, fits within the whole schema of education. So I think when I was teaching at the time, I was interested in being a bit more active and being um, kind of a champion for Pacific education. And so when I realized that um, and I was starting to get absorbed into all of these union activities, it made me step back and think I can actually have more impact, not just in music, but in education as a whole. So when I was then approached by an organization to, to you know, to work for them, you know, to, and I had interviews, but, you know, in essence, I was shoulder tapped and there were two positions at the time and the one that I really wanted, I didn't get because they were too slow to come back to me. So I went with the other company and then I worked with those guys for probably three, was it? Um, no, about six years, about five and a half years I worked for that company. And um, through that time, had a lots of opportunity to connect with educators right across New Zealand and really champion uh, what they can do to help our Pacific students succeed. Um, yeah, so that's that's what prompted me to move away from teaching in the classroom. And I explained, to, I remember vividly explained to my students at the time, the reason why I'm leaving the teaching is I'm moving away from having influence inside the four walls of a classroom to having influence in the four corners of our country. So for me, that was the attraction. It's like, mm -hmm. I want to, and I said to my students at the time, I want to create more teachers like me, who you know that do really cool stuff with you. Can you imagine a teacher like me in other classrooms across the country? Don't you think other students deserve that? They were like, yeah, true that, miss. Far. Lucky we're going to go down that school that you're going to go to. So I, just, you know, I would be asking us, please don't do that. That's not necessary. Um, where I'm going to is going to help others, you know, and, and break down barriers for them and inspire them to, you know, to be their best. Yeah. 
Oh, you're so inspirational, sis. Um, did you always know you were going to be a teacher? Because I know you were you um you went on to university, you studied music. Um, was going into teaching like the next the natural next step or I mean, was there something else? Were you planning to take another pathway, career pathway, mm -hmm. or was it always, you know, your years of service in the church in terms of being a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, was that all a combination of, okay, now this is it, this is definitely the career path I want to take? Yeah, that, that's a cool question. And I can answer that two ways. Like, And I can only answer that now because I've got the, you know, hindsight mm -hmm. and I can see what's actually happened. And you've actually described that quite well that it, it actually was, it's a combination of the accu accumulation of all the positions I've held that mm. gave me the skills to then, oh, teaching is a viable career. But in actual fact too, um, my family on both my father and my mother's side, um, you're either a teacher or a minister. Um, mm. And I didn't realize that until I had myself in 2016 and went to Samoa and mm. realized that, you know, being amongst your aying and listening to them, finding out that, you know, I had like aunties and uncles back in the day who were school inspectors. Mm. I had, you know, I've got someone on my mum's side who's like in the in the Ministry of Education, Sport and Culture in Samoa at the moment. I think she's CE or something. So education's always been, um, or being a teacher has been a, a job that's been quite clear uh, amongst both sides of the family. And, um, and when I started teaching as my first job when I was sixth form, you know, I started teaching piano. So I learned it from third form to fifth form and then I started teaching it because when we have pulenga local or, um, you know, local for Bukanga and I would play, I'd get approached by people like, oh, can you teach my, and that's, you know, that's where, you know, your father approached me, you know, to teach Lani back then too. It was, I remember playing for something and being approached, I was like, ah, okay, yep, give me another one. <laughs> like, I remember at the time being really freaked out, like, um, okay, yeah, all right. And then I had to go ask my parents. They're like, oh, um, he's um, someone from Tianatu. And um, <laughs> you know, so there, there was lots of conversations like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, thinking about that now, um, what prompted me to be a teacher, it's, yeah, it's been in the blood. And then it's through my various experiences. It just naturally led me towards there. But mm. it was never in my mind when I started university. I didn't want to be a teacher. I actually yeah. wanted to study law. But that's mm. because I loved watching Matlock, Perry Mason, um, all this stuff, you know. I was such a TV junkie and I wanted to study law and become a lawyer. And my friends are like, shh, you're going to go do music so that people at church know that you can teach music. I mean, um, I've been teaching piano for like two years now. And now I need to prove myself further by getting this. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so that's how that ended up happening. Yeah. So it's kind of like by default, but also mm. by by experience and um, by birthright. Hello, we're born into it. Yeah, so my brother is the minister in our family, my nuclear mm. family, and I'm the teacher. Um, but my other siblings, um, they've got kind of service-oriented teaching-type roles. So if I boil it down, in essence, it's communication. All of us mm -hmm. are communicators, um, which means that, you know, being a minister and being a teacher, having that level of, of communication is quite important. Um, you mentioned going to Samoa uh, 2016 for your safai. So let's talk about tautua, um, you know, service, um, you know, growing up in the diaspora, like, can you speak to that experience for you? Um, why was it important for you to to go and, and you know, 
obviously it's it's an honor, right? They're bestowing you with a an important title. Um, but what is it like, you know, growing up in the diaspora and then service and Tautua, like mm. all of that? Yeah, I think, you know, as kids growing up, um, we, we associated Tautua as, you know, making cups of tea, um, <laughs> Just any instruction you're given at any family fellow loving, uh, any any wedding, and and that's how you knew family dynamics and family politics, um, because you you might be involved in um in a in a family fellow loving, and then sometimes you might not go to them because there's like yeah. beef between families or something. You know, and it's always, it was always quite funny, entertaining. Right? <laughs> how come we not going to that one? Oh, um, how come we're doing this one? Oh, whose whose family is this? You know, so it was this yeah. constant kind of. I don't know, revolving door of um of activity in that space. Um but yeah, it's just being being thrust into it, you know, and being taught that, you know, it's it's do first, complain later. Um mm. you know, if I tell you what to do, you better go do it. Um so as as I said before, uh, it's out of fear. Um yeah, but just learning and being uskai, being fa'alo, fa'alongo, you know, all of those things. And and if you do something wrong, it's in front of the wider family, and then you know, mm. you know, so it's it's constant hyper vigilance. Say, eh? I felt that I was in, a, in that kind of state where you know anything I did said or was going to be kind of monitored and watched, um, and that kind of led me to to write that article later on with um, the file Idioninari about this title to a life cycle, you know, and because right. what I really wanted to do when I wrote that was to really privilege Tautua as people talk about it in different types which is which is cool and it's true but i wanted to elevate how we talk about tautua is it's something that we've learned from cradle to grave and that that's when we become matai ourselves that it's this process of growth that we have from when we're children and it's that tautua ia tautua stage when we become parents it's tautua ia bule you know or serve to lead and then um, the last one which is um which is lead to serve, and it's the grandparents' phase. And so what I posit is that which I've coined as decision-making conversations, that we learn how to do that when we're kids, but we only activate that decision-making when we're adults and we become of age to be able to to, to, to carry those out. So I think that as I've shared the article with lots of people, they're like, oh, true, that is how I how see things. Oh, I didn't realize that I was like that, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, measina that we have within our culture that mm. if we can articulate that well and explain it to people, especially to non-Pacific people and non-Samoans who choose to write about our stuff, please mm. write from a position of authenticity and if and, and don't come across as you're the authority because you're not of the ethnic mix. So write with people that do know that stuff and have lived that stuff. Um, you know, so that adds to your credibility in that space. Um, mm. Yeah. So let's talk about, I have another question, but I want to jump in there because you mentioned Google Scholars, you know, the articles, um, you know, getting that kind of work out there. Like, are you seeing more uh, of your, I guess, colleagues, uh, Pacific Island colleagues and, and, and friends, I guess, academics, are they, are you seeing more of them putting out articles on Google Scholars um, or right now is it just a few of you because I like how you mentioned authenticity right because there are some people who study us <laughs> and then they go and write stuff and it's like don't be don't be that guy yeah. um, you know like you just it's such a different perspective so 
is there a collective of you? Is it growing or is it still just a few? I think there's a, a huge groundswell at the moment. There's a movement to really, uh, those of us that actually speak our languages, mm. um, to really inform our writing based on those experiences, our lived realities. And there are pockets of people across the place. And I just think mm-hmm. um, with this kind of current generation of academics, they're really wanting to dismantle a lot of the the stuff that's been written before, especially by uh, non-Pacific or non-Samoan um, academics who have chosen to study us, you know, and mm. make kind of, not class aspersions, but just make these kind of assumptions that, oh, you know, the simplicity of our cultures or, you know, but they, they don't know the levels of intricacies. And that's something that I struggled with during university was constantly being poked and prodded and being asked to, to find out things about my culture that I was uncomfortable about because at the time I was young in an emerging kind of leader in that space and I interpreted that as you're going to use me to find that information that you do not have access to but in my mind that's been because those are not questions I do not ask my elders and being cognizant that my parents are still alive if I ask questions that dishonor people and kind of you know trample the va that I have with the person and, and the participants that I'm talking with so no and even when I did carry out research, I would go with my father, you know, because he had connections with the people that we were speaking to for my various research projects over the years. And um, it was a very family-oriented event in that sense. Yeah. Mm. You know, um, I've, I saw this in the description. Um, I saw this 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 thing that it said um, as Samoan academics we acknowledge the problematic usage of the term Pacifica it was on one of the the, the the articles but then you you talk about it's like can you can you speak to that um, I think for this particular article it was used because of there was a reason why you use the term Pacifica but um, just for those who are just I guess non-Pacific who are listening like yeah. what is problematic about the usage of Pacifica. Yeah, so Pacifica, it's spelled, you know, P-A-S-I-F-I-K-A. And we all know in Pacific languages, that's not actually a real word. Right. It doesn't exist in any of our Pacific languages. And I always put it down to, and I mean, that, that was a, coin, a, a phrase that was coined by the Ministry of Education a, a long time ago. Um, my theory, my, my conspiracy theory is that there's a lot of Tongans and Samoans that work in the ministry. So it was kind of like, and I kind of, this is how I explain to people is a kind of a funny way to explain it, like a literary company, if you're familiar with that program. So it's like the Tongan part was Basi, because they say Basifiki. Yeah. But for Samoans, we say Basifika with the yeah. E. And so I was like, oh, yes, yeah, so it's the Tongan bit first, and then yeah. the Samoan with the Fika. So like, Basi, Fika. <laughs> but um, I do remember at one time I'm talking with. Um, Dr. Lisieli Tongatio, who was the Pulima'ata for um, Pacific Education, and she told me the real reason at the time, I've, I've forgotten it, but it's not what I thought was my conspiracy theory, but it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, there is a reason for why they use that, but in saying that, though, but I just it, the, the actual reason escapes me, but mm-hmm. the word Pacifica, it's only applicable in New Zealand, it's it's the only, right. it's, and everyone in the in the world knows in academic circles, it's it's a word that that specifically identifies Pacific communities that have migrated from the Pacific and have now settled in New Zealand. It's mm-hmm. it's not used anywhere else in the world, and so now we're trying to move to 
the use of uh, the word Pacific, but even that word is problematic. So we try to use the word Moana, or we ah. use the word Moana Pacific to mm. show to, to show that because the world knows the word Pacific, but not the word Pacifica because it's more New Zealand based. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think at the moment our kind of generation of academics is championing that phrase of Moana or Moana Pacific. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I just had one more question going back to um, Sautua and service. Um, how is your journey thus far um, going? You know, what um, has your experience been like as, as a, as a Matei? Man, I have to say it's, um, it's pretty challenging. Eh? I mean, as a female Matei, it's different as well because, you know, we don't speak in, in public mm -hmm. forums. You know, it's normally the, the, the tula fali, the orator that speaks um, and my title is a, is a high chief title um, and it can also be a paramount chief title, so swafari. Mm. And so um, my role is I'm involved in the decision-making. So when, when, when formal happen, um, I'm expected to be there to, to listen and contribute. Now at the moment, because my father is a ono too, um, I will have conversations to him, with him, and then he will convey that as a collective on our behalf to the wider family when we have meetings. So I think sometimes in my family, they might feel that, oh, I don't say anything, but they don't know I have private chats with my dad and then he will convey that, you know, because he is the, the title holder and the and the subtle of our ainga. So mm -hmm. it makes sense to do it through that way. Um, but yeah, otherwise I'm there in the background, you know, doing things and absorbing. Um, being a matai is really difficult in that if you if you want to honor your, your role and responsibilities to your family, it's a very costly, expensive exercise. Um, but putting that aside, mm -hmm. it's all to do with, you know, um, honouring your ngafa and making mm -hmm. sure that you, you know, that the reason why we have these titles is to serve the family. It's not self-service. Mm -hmm. You don't do it for yourself. And I think the perception of um, non-Samoans and, you know, who are not Matei think that, oh, if you're a chief, you're important. Yes, but you're important because you have important things to do for your family in your village, in your church, wherever you're placed. So when I think about in our church context, when we have, for example, I remember growing up when we have, um, you know, coffee, eh? we have visiting um, Fefeo or Aokam. And I remember there's a whole process where they have the whakao, where they decide who gets to speak, you know. So I used to watch that in the back of church, you know, as a kid, watch the um, kula whales battle it out to see who would have the right to speak and um, you know, and you watch that process, you know, because you're a girl at the back washing the dishes and then you hear them, they'll tell you to stop so you, they can do the whānau longer, you know, do that process and you'd watch them stand up and speak. And, you know, so it's really cool um, at the moment being being a matai and just seeing, you know, how much uh, of a responsibility that you do hold mm -hmm. for your family and that if um, it's just a lot of communication. Um, but fundamentally, it's a whole lot of love. Eh? We do all these things out of love. Mm. Um, and it's it's different to the to the concept of love, I guess, that Balangis think about, because when we say love, we we mean service, and that mm. anything means something. We jump, we we drop everything, and we're there for for other people. So when people talk about family over everything, it is it is family mm. of everything, um, and we do that through our deeds and our actions. Um, you know, your current job, your current role, um, you are the Senior Pacifica Manager at MIT, uh, Manukau Institute of Technology. 
what is, what does that job entail? Because honestly, I was like, senior Pacifica manager. Hmm. What yeah. is that? Like, uh, what is that? What does that role entail for you? Well, that's that's a new role, eh? And uh, when when that role came out, um, I was actually working for the Pacifica Education Centre as academic manager. So we hired officers at MIT on one end of the building, and the job I'm at now is at the other end of the corridor. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, um... yeah. So how I how I kind of socialized with the people that um, I eventually came to work with was. Mm there was a shared lunchroom. So we'd go and eat in there. And, um, you know, as you do as Samoans, Islanders, you know, strike up conversation. They'd talk about work stuff. They'd explain things to me and I'll tell them, oh, you guys should, blah, blah, blah. They're like, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, you know. Um, and so I got to know and bond with them. And, um, but that role, it's um, it's basically to to implement the MIT Specifica Strategic Plan 2018 to 2023, I think it is. Yep. And, there's uh, four goals within this this plan. Um, it's to do with you know transforming learner success, um, powerful establishing powerful um, connections, and it's more of a community goal. One is strengthening academic ability, uh, capability. Yes, strengthening academic quality, and that's I think because of my background, that's the goal I've chosen to smash the most in the work, um, because you know it's a it's a learning institution. So the smart thing to do is with a strategic lens is tackle that first and see how well things are in place to actually advance our Pacific learners. And then the other goal is to do with, um, can't remember what it is, um, but yeah, I'm doing that. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, in that role, it's, um, it's, it's within, it's located within the Pacifica development office um, called PDO and it's a service center. And that means that what we do is we provide strategic advice around anything Pacific across mm. the institute into individuals. So it can come in any kind of way. Like, for example, if um, lecturers approach me saying, oh, I'm having some issues with um, Pacific students or I want to increase my cultural capability, well, we, we actually run workshops that people run. So we mm. call them the Pacific Cultural Intelligence Workshops. And we use the Kagala framework um, from mm. uh, Hilton Freeman um, and Johansson for 2004, uh, a recent version, there's other iterations. Um, to help explain that. So um, being in this role has really helped me to kind of socialize that idea, kind of help train the trainers within the organization. We also train externally. You know, through this role, I've managed to connect and actually work with Samoa Customs was one contract that we had where um, this is all pre-COVID. We trained mm -hmm. some Samoan Customs officers that came through and that was through MFAT and New Zealand Customs. Um, they just did an exam and come over and I remember when they came in the room and they saw me they were like who's this and then their um, Balangi host was like oh and this is Iono and she'll be <laughs> like you know and then they, and then I had to explain to their guide like well, why, why did their faces change I went let me explain something to you the reason why their faces are like that is because Iono was a chief title mm -hmm. and secondly I'm female and thirdly I'm young so they're probably wondering where did that come from? In all three of them. to explain what that was. And so when they went to introduce themselves, you know, they, they did the whole, you know, fa'kurima fa'alangi. I was like, oh, you know, it was like, it's a New Zealand born. I was just like, wow, okay. Um, and I hate I hate that phrase, New Zealand born, anyway. Yeah, I was just trying to say. Hate it. I always <laughs> use the phrase Samoan New Zealander because, you know, when I yeah. do the, the stuff that I do in the work, yeah. 
But you can tell I'm not a Kiwi, you know, like they see your name, they're like, you're not from here. No, I was born here, but my family are from Samoa. So it's yeah. it's how I choose to identify myself. I'm a Samoan, New Zealander. And also I privilege my ethnicity and my language. The fact that I can speak Samoan. So yeah, I always lead with that. So yes. and to each their own, right? So I think New Zealand born as a phrase has been peppered a lot in the in the terminology for a while in the literature. Um, but personally I don't choose to identify with that because my Samoan worldview eclipses anything else, you know, because it's based yes. on what I value and what I've what I've been um, trained to, to believe. So, yeah. Amen, sister. I was just going to say, hallelujah. Honestly, I, I do that here. Like, people are, so you New Zealander, you know, as a, you know, in the teaching circles here, and I'm like, no, I'm a Samoan first. Like, I, I do the whole spiel, and honestly, I think they look at me like, okay, we didn't ask for the story, but I'm like, I have to, I have to tell them yes. because I'm like, yes. it's important. You know, and they're like, but what's your past? You know, and then it's like, because international teaching circles and everyone's yes. they're really big on like, which passport do you carry? What's your nationality? And I'm like, whatever. And I think I'm very lucky that I've studied, you know, social anthro and ethnomusicology, you know, that I've had that, that background in terms of the theory to ground me to explain and to have these conversations with people. So I say to them, you know, um, my ethnicity is this. My nationality is this, but um, but my identity is this, you know. So the identity is a combination of those things. So that's something I'm working on at the moment is this whole notion of identity construction and identity mm. formation. So my theory is that, you know, we can form identities, but for me that's a solid state. But when we come across a new idea, that's when we get into a state of identity construction because we're still trying to tussle with the fact that do I agree with this idea? Do I want to modify it? Do I reject it? So until you've made those decisions, only then can you continue to form your identity. So I believe that as we continue to grow and age and mature as people, our identity continues to evolve based on the experiences that we have and the things that we want to add to our our kitty or, you know, our kind of basket of what it is that, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, that's me too. Oh, I want to do that as well. I want to champion that. So it's kind of like if we see the world as a bit of a menu, and we get mm-hmm. to, to we get to pick and select what we want, and of course, when I have these conversations with non salmons and non Pacific, I go, when you go to a restaurant, you pick the best, right? You pick your favorite dishes, or you might want to be adventurous and try something new. But you tend to try something new based on your taste for something. Right. If you like spicy stuff, you're going to go for the spicy dish, right? And so, when we think about ourselves as people, we need to be self-selecting stuff as well that that we enjoy selecting things in life that we're passionate about and want to eat over and over again of course you know there's, there's a challenge or the, the drama of you eating too much of that stuff and then put on weight you know so um yeah just gotta strike the, the right balance i guess i love that um let's talk about your health um you know you've undergone some changes um i don't want to say recently because it's been a, a long it's been a long journey for you um <laughs> Would you be able to speak a little bit on on just some of the changes uh, health wise you've made in your life? Yeah, so my my health journey, um, I I had a dual dental switch um, surgery, uh, which is a type of bariatric surgery, and I had that in April of this year. Mm-hmm. Just pause there. So this has been a three year journey, right? So from in 2016, actually, you know, I was at my heaviest weight. I was like 160 kgs, and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of health issues. Um, and a lot of underlying health issues that are family oriented, right? Hereditary conditions too. So I was prone to get them. 
And I think um, once I had that referral from my GP, I actually, by the time I got my head together around, okay, this is something I want to do seriously, the journey started properly for me in 2018. And then it was um, just a journey to get onto um, the surgery. So there's a lot of milestones that you have to, in the New Zealand public health system, that you have to meet in order to be, to be, you know, able to get the surgery. So you have to lose a certain amount of weight. And once you meet that weight, then you are able to be put along to the next um, step of the journey. And so I was, I have, I've had three cancellations of surgery. So that was the frustrating part was, you know, January, 2019, my um, surgeon went on holiday. So I had to wait till he came back from holiday. And then December of that year, my surgeon had an accident. So I had to wait for him to heal. He had got into a car accident. Um, and so like the, the year after that, like April, 2020, it's meant to have the surgery then. And then, oh, Aotearoa went to his, into its first level four lockdown. So um, that didn't happen. And so it finally happened this year and the surgeon decided, you know, other cancellations were happening, but he wasn't going to cancel mine because it would have made it four cancellations. And I had the surgery supposed to take three hours, took two hours, 15 minutes, no complications. Um, I had a surgery on a Wednesday. I was in work calls on Thursday and Friday, went into work on the following Monday to do this thing. And then I recovered from home, still recovering. Um, before so before I had the surgery, I weighed in at 139 kilos. Mm-hmm. And today I weigh uh, 89. So I've lost 50 kilos since the surgery. Um, just the, the whole, I think people, the, the whole uh, stigma attached to surgery, like people, that's why I chose to post about it and explain mm. my journey because I think people, oh, that's the easy way out. Let me tell you what's easy. It's not. Um, it, there's mm. all of these series of, of milestones that you have to reach in order to get there. So, and the reason why hospitals do that is they want to make sure that patients that, you know, fit the criteria to have it are able to sustain it and have maximum benefit of having the surgery. Um, so whilst you're in the state right now, the real challenge is maintenance and making mm-hmm. sure that I don't gain weight and I haven't gained weight since I've had the surgery. Um, mm-hmm. And just my whole attitude to life has changed when I look at food. Like I enjoy cooking food for family. I enjoy being around friends and, and other family that eat food in front of me that I used to eat. And I my brain is already calibrated to, well, you can't eat that. You have to eat to live. So, you know, so my whole self-talk <laughs> to myself is, um, you know, just your the way that you have to eat now is to to live a long life and, and do do more for others. So as much as it's been a personal private journey for myself, I've chosen to make it public so that it inspires others to to seriously think about their health too. Everyone has a right to live a long, productive life, but it's up to you to to take that chance and to make that decision. Mm. Um self-care, you know, like as you know, just you are busy. you have so much going on um with work and then obviously just all these different parts of your life um how do you look after yourself like outside of music outside of educator life outside of work um you know what are some things that you do to really kind of just have downtime and take care of yourself probably the the biggest thing i do is actually go walking um Lately, I've been trying to do this thing of like try to walk 10 kilometers a day mm-hmm. and um, I'll break that up throughout the day, depending if I have meetings. But I find that going out for walks and being out in nature, you know, I have playlists that I listen to and it, it allows me the time to process. 
mm. and think about things for myself. That stillness within myself when I'm out there um, by myself is is really, I really enjoy that because I think for the most part my life is 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 tied to other people um, and their needs, and so um, that's probably one of the few times it's just me um, with myself in my head, uh, listening mm. to music and and thinking about things that I need to do. Uh, for myself and just yeah just setting up for the future I guess yeah so walking is definitely a big thing for me um spending time with friends you know if you may you may have you know so many friends and but you know you might have a few Mm. core group that um you can be real with you know people that know the real authentic genuine you not the the public persona you that you know you have to put on it's not that you have to put on but there was a certain level of expectation that people have. And, you know, mm-hmm. people know you for certain things. So they're there to engage with you for that thing that they know mm-hmm. you for. Um, yeah. You know, um, I want to talk about manuscript. Wait, I don't even know if I said that wrong. I want to yeah, talk yeah, about your blog. Right. I want yeah. to talk about your blog because I, I feel like people need to know. And I'm yeah. sure that those who know you know but you know there are so many people out there man you gotta check this out um can you speak a little bit about your blog it's separated into four sections um how long has it been going why did you start that um yeah yeah. i think um at the time you know i had recently become a widow and i wanted to find a, a way to kind of express my grief um, but I didn't want it to be like this really morbid widow's blog. I wanted it to be something, um, you know, and I thought about manuscript, you know, manu being my name and manuscript being something that, you know, is music related to music notation. But also I love writing as well, creative writing. Like I remember being a kid growing up, whenever it was creative writing time, man, I could write like nothing. It was easy for me. Um, and so for me, that blog is a combination of the things that I love about literature um, and music and just uh, explaining feelings and expression. So um, I think I'm in the kind of second iteration of that blog. I used to write um, on that when I was working with the, with the previous organization. And I used to write a lot about what I called Pacifica polygogy. Mm. And that coined polygogy was coined by Lillian um, Scudder. Um, you know, lovely Tongan woman that I, you know, really enjoyed um, doing work with when I was at the University of Auckland studying. And, um, you know, polygogy is about, you know, the different types of pedagogy, andragogy, hutagogy um, that, that exists for our people, that it's, you know, ways of learning that um, comes from our people and, and what we do is specific. Um, mm-hmm. But manuscript is, you know, I take songs and then, you know, divide them up into the, the verses, chorus, and then I reflect on that. And I what I tend to do is I reflect on situations and conversations around me. I don't name people, but what I tend to do is I, I play the song over and over on repeat while I'm, while I'm writing. And um, sometimes when I write these blog posts, um, it'll flow naturally. And, what I t- and that's what I'm aiming for. I don't, I don't like editing. For me, when I'm listening to something, it's just it just flows out of it, and then I publish it straight away. The only thing I'll edit is like you know grammatical errors and stuff like that. But and then I'll insert the YouTube video because the idea is when you go to look at the blog post is I want you to play the clip so you can hear it while you're reading. And um, it's been really cool to have feedback from people saying, "Man, that really resonated with me," 
I'm going through some stuff right now. And they become, you know, conversation starters with people and they start sharing about, you know, and I sometimes I crack up because I'm like, I didn't ask for it. I just <laughs> put out something that um, resonated with me, like, oh, this is what I'm feeling at the moment. I'm vibing off this or um, a friend is going through something and then I, I come across a song that speaks mm -hmm. to that moment or that situation and I have to blog about it. Then I'll share the link with them. I go, just read this or bro, have a listen to that. And then they come back with, you know, cry face emojis <laughs> like, yeah, man, that's me. How did you know? Bro? Uh, well, we had a conversation before and that's what came yeah. up. So I thought I'd write about it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been a real cathartic process for me to, to write in that way. Um, and so that's, on poem reflection, that's also one of the ways in which I exercise self-care is to mm. be able to release emotions and just let things go um, and to offer that up as gifts to others. Like this is what mm. I was going through or this is what others around me that I love are going through. Will this help you too? You know, so um, I always try and do things that have multi-pronged um, benefits for others. You know, like I don't do one thing. When I do a thing, it's there's multiple benefits that will help. Because um, I just think life is too short to do single things. You've got to do impactful things that have connections with others and multiple benefits, yeah. Um, the reason I asked about the blog is because I was wondering, you know, you've got a poetry corner on there as well. I know you've already spoken about two projects, uh, musical uh, music projects that you're working on, but I was wondering if you've ever considered putting out a poetry book or um or a book, like writing a book um, that maybe, um, you know, resonates. I mean, that maybe, I don't know, reaching out to a different type of audience and uh, not just our um, Pacific people, you know. Um, have you ever thought about that or? Yeah, I've always had ideas around dabbling in, in poetry. Um, you know, I think about all the experiences growing up. I've got books of poetry just sitting in my studio um, in boxes. Um, mm. And that was, I think, you know, when I reflect on that, that was at the time you, you go through things and you just mm. write poems to kind of put it down on paper and close the book, to, you know, so to speak. So it was a kind of way of releasing something and parking it so I don't have to think about that anymore or, or, or carry that with me around. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did contribute a poem to this other project ages ago and, and it was really interesting at the time because I never thought about myself as a poet, per se, um, or as a songwriter, you know, which involves, you know, levels of poetry, which is, you know, the assonance with, with rhyming words and things like that. But, um, yeah, and I, I think that's something I would consider. Um, it's just a matter of finding the the right project or a right approach to to the project to, to put that out. Um, you know, I've got other former students from the high school I taught at that are all writing poems, writing books, mm. and, you know, they'll miss, miss, you should write They still call me miss. I'm like, um, okay, yeah, I'll think about <laughs> it. It's on the list of things to do in life. Um, yeah. But, yeah, there's definitely scope for that, yeah. Do you think you'd ever uh, want to uh, go to Samoa, like live there, go back to Samoa, live, settle there? Um, do you see that happening uh, in the future? I think it's important to do that. Um, at least once in my lifetime. I think mm. it's, in, um, I I have no plans for that at the moment because my plans revolve around my parents. Mm. And I think until um, my parents are no longer of this world, then I, I, I can't really make plans for myself. Mm. Um, 
And the reason I say that is because it's it's the tautua aspect of it. In the way that I enact tautua in our life, it's um, it's what they're used to. Um, so, yeah, I my parents are my top priority, and um, we've talked a lot in the past about moving to Samoa. Then they would always say, "Oh, we can't move because you're still here." So it has to be a package deal. Um, but I, I don't foresee, you know, due to COVID, um, returning anytime soon. Um, but that is that is an idea I would like to entertain. You know, is go back if the right opportunity came along to be able to do something worthwhile and to help, you know, contribute to my village and my my country back home. Definitely, I'd, I'd consider that. Um, but at the moment, it's I can only see the now while my parents are here. Um, in terms of my own future, I'm just doing things in the background to kind of build that platform um, for wherever it happens to be. But for, for now, it's um, very family-oriented. Um, and I know for others, they probably think, oh, you're holding yourself back. And I challenge that because I've, I've thought those thoughts, you know, a long time growing up, you know. How, you know, why can't I go live somewhere else or why can't I do this and that? And then I've actually thought, Sunga, all the things you're doing in life um, has been because of what your parents have taught you and what, you know, the values have shared. And mm. I've been able to inject that into my work and my ethos and philosophy and how I deal with people. So that's all contributed to the relational vibe that I have with others. So mm. are there you know, looking after your parents doesn't hold you back. If anything, it gives you the richness and the wealth of what you need because mm. the world needs that. Yeah. So I guess it's 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 all down to perspective. Mm. And uh, if you're able to, you know, because looking after your parents is not an easy thing. And if you're able to to balance that out with the self-care uh, moments with yourself, then that's what you should do in order to, to maintain that level of service. Who are some women um, that inspire you in, in the work that you do or just uh, in terms of life in general? Um, yeah, who are some mentors or women that, that you know, help mm. you on your journey? When you, when you asked about mentors, two women came to mind straight away. My mother. Mm. Um, mother had, mum had a real hard time growing up, um, but the lessons I've learned and continue to learn from her is, you know, tenacity, uh, resilience. She's probably the most resilient person I know. And she doesn't even know that because mm. um, I need to explain things to her, you know, um, about the impact of what she does. And then even the things that she doesn't do. Another person that came to mind is um, Loni Setanielo, you know, the faletua mm. of the Ritana Tanielo growing up in church. You know, they came to our church when I was fifth form, mm. um, year 11 and 92 and that was a critical time they came at the probably the best time in my life because that was my first year sitting exams and so having them come on board when I was at that point in my life really helped to solidify the importance and relevance of education you know so with her influence she was such a driving force in all of us young people getting educated getting getting our qualifications getting out there and just excelling and succeeding um and she was such a strong advocate for that and so just so loving. Mm. And even if, you know, see her around and um, communicate with her, still call her Tina because, yeah, mm. man, she was a mother figure hard. Um, so when you say what, who, other women, um, there's, and there's lots of other 
woman around the place. Um, just really had to, yeah, those are the two that come to mind straight away because of mm -hmm. um, the deep-seated um, values and, and beliefs that they've installed in me growing up. Uh, mm -hmm. Just women out there in the world now, just anyone really that is being true to themselves, like mm -hmm. sense a communal mm -hmm. person, you know, on what they put out there. Yeah, just women who know who they are mm. and, and know what they want. And yeah, those those are women that I that I respect and support and endorse the most. You know, I've always wondered. I've always wondered if um, there was ever a time that you thought about being a lecturer at Auckland University or yeah. just any university. I've always wondered, like. I feel like I can see you and I've always pictured you to be in that space. I know you've explained about the four corners of a classroom and then the four corners of New Zealand. I love that. But I've always, I had to ask, I've always wondered, I feel like you could be just huge influence and impact so many of our young people's lives, um, you know, in ethnomusicology, music, anthropology, like, have you ever wanted to be a lecturer or? Well, I think when we were at uni, that was that was a goal, and I I, I did end up lecturing and tutoring uh, while mm. I was at uni. So that Music's of the World paper, mm. so I remember taking that and you know stage one, um, and then I ended up tutoring it uh, when I graduated from that music degree, um, and then I ended up lecturing that in a, in a summer school paper when the lecturers went on holiday. So it was me and another um, lecturer. We we tag team in that and. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've done the lecturing and tutoring before. Um, I think you know, who knows? Maybe later in the future. I mean, I, I do guest lectures here and there. Um, I've done a guest lecture recently for the Bachelor of Ed uh, Primary Pacific degree, which is a new flagship degree that's come out of um, MIT. Mm. Um, so yeah, so yeah, there's scope for for lecturing and tutoring. Um, and I you know kind of do that on the fly. I don't know about whether I'd want to do that full time. Mm. Um, and for lecturers, there's a whole host of responsibilities that and competing priorities, you know, as well as you trying to attract students to your program. Got to mm. get bums on seats, but you've also got to, you know, make sure your programs are in play. There's competing priorities of you also have to publish as well. So your output of your, you know, as your own standing as an academic, you have to build that too. And then you've got to do all the marking and all the meetings and all the other kind of stuff that go with it. Um, mm. Yeah. So yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's on the horizon, but it's like it's not a. Um, it, I think it's not as, as strongly held as it was in the past. I think. I think it's only because I'm, I've I've had more um, exposure, I guess, to other um, areas or activities that require my kind of expertise in that space. Otherwise, nothing happens, and so I feel more drawn to things where. Um, I am that ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but I'm teaching other people to be, um, you know, ambulance drivers and RNs with me in that, in that <laughs> space to make sure, you know. So I've talked about this in the past where I might be an ophthalmologist doing the surgery and then I'm trying to train the other optometrists say, so that, you know, you're trying to make sure that there's other people that can help help you in that, in that space. You know, I forgot to ask, um, we were talking about your current role. Um, do other universities or like tertiary institutions around New Zealand have similar um, 
you know, similar offices, like like what you guys do at MIT, or is that just a MIT thing or an Auckland thing? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. is there a collective of you? So, for example, at Victoria University, Otago University, or yeah, because you mentioned yeah. that you you run workshops all over New Zealand. So I was wondering, is it just a small group of you doing all that work, or is there different offices yeah. around different? Um, yeah. Yeah, there's two parts. So, I mean, uh, the question around, you know, are there other offices like yours? Um, it's actually to the discretion of each of those providers. If they see uh, the need and the importance to have a centre or an office yeah. that is, you know, based in Pacific Achievement, or then they might have one. So, Unitec has a Pacific centre, and um, Serupe, Dr. Fadaniko Tomoniko, he's the director of the Pacific centre. Um, mm. So, he's my equivalent at Unitec. Um, and MIT and Unitec is a is a subsidiary of Tepukinga, which is, mm. you know, by 1st of January 2023, all of the 16, 17 ITPs and ITOs are all, they've all merged at the moment, but they're all coming to full effect as one collective um, organization in uh, 2023. And so other centers, um, in terms of those workshops that you asked about, like we, it's our small team that delivers that. And um, due to COVID, they're now starting to deliver that online. Um, and a lot of the workshops that they do is both internally to build our staff capability. So for those that do work with Pacific staff or Pacific learners at MIT, um, and then when we do external ones, it's more to do with teachers or um, other people in other organizations where they have to do community engagement with Pacific or they want to increase um, kind of like the HR drive within their um, organization to attract more Pacific um, workers um, and also some people are trying to write Pacific strategic plans so we talk about the MIT Pacific strategic plan as a kind of a blueprint mm. for discussion around well what then you know so we analyze our plan to show so how would you then what are the main things that you want in your plan what's what's the end goal here what do we want and then what then do you need to put in there to get to the aspirational goal so in terms of the workshops we offer, we workshop things really well where we front load them with the content and then we workshop it together. We tussle it out, work it through. And then by the time they leave the workshop, they've got something tangible to go away with. Because I've been in that business of, you know, professional learning development for a while since I left teaching. And what I found was I've seen a lot of really bad shoddy examples of professional learning and I don't like it. And so I set out to, you know, when the opportunity came to build this within MIT in our, in our office, I felt that was a great way to kind of show how it should be done so that you not only have repeat business, but you've also got people feeling empowered about what they want to do in the community and they're getting to where they need to be. And what we've found is when we've done things in this way, we always get them coming back, asking for more information or giving us follow-up on how they're going. So... Yeah, it's in a, a really good way to do that. And we um, we find out more things about, you know, the clients that we work with because we ask them in advance, what is it that you want? So the workshops are tailored, customized, and personalized to the people that come through the door. Been right. to enough TV where you go in and you're like, oh, that was rubbish. Had nothing to do with <laughs> completely missed the mark, you know? So, and I, I preface all this. So if I'm facilitating the session, I spell it out up front quite explicitly. This workshop is is designed based on what you gave in your feedback in the mm. survey, right? And then, um, so we're going to be addressing all of that. And we we never have any unsatisfied customers because 
we've pitched it directly to what they've asked for. Mm. And you think about other places where you go to a thing and you're like, well, I don't even know. That was cool stuff, but I don't know how to apply that. So mm. I think using my teacher training, I'm able to scaffold things quite well and then help them to come up with a plan for next steps immediately rather than them trying to process that information themselves and take it away and get it wrong. But I'd mm. rather do that with them in the workshop so that when they leave, they're satisfied with that, you know, and I check for understanding. Did you get that? Is this, is this what you wanted? They're mm. like, yes, absolutely. Oh, I had no idea. Oh, I feel so enthused. Oh, I'm really inspired. Now. <laughs> cool. Get the hell out. Okay. Get out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, if you're like the teacher from boy oh sorry it's three o'clock i can't tell you what potential <laughs> oh the bell's gone see you then <laughs> crack up man um what advice would you have for um you know younger faibese up and coming faibese in their churches um musicians what advice would you give them um thinking back on your experiences Oh, I would just tell Faith Bessie, you know, practice, 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 like hone your craft. Um, I encourage other Faith Bessie to listen to as many other different Faith Bessie as possible, create a network of Faith Bessie, um, just get out there and, and connect with others. I, I know for my own journey, I used to crack up when um, other Faith Bessie used to compete with each other, and I used to laugh at that. I used to, mate, we're all praising God. Who the hell are you praising? You know, so it's like, <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, I, you know, I, I I used to laugh when people would try and compete with me. And things I'm like, I'm not competing. I'm playing a song for the Bulinga thing or I'm playing for the Mukanga thing. Unless, of course, it was a Galvanga. Then that's a different yeah. story. But if it's, for example, like, you know, Bessie uh, for Kalarele or the Me, you know, there was always this kind of inherent competition. And I used to laugh, you know, we had choir and people would say, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I have high standards anyway. So, you know, don't worry about, you know, we need to do well because I'm really anal about these things. So it's going to be, you know, and, you know, and, you know you need to do things like, they used to hate it. Eh? It's just so funny. But, um, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> you know, side note, I just, just made me laugh because I was, I think one of my, most favorite memories, um, like being in choir, was when you came to take our youth choir. Um, was it, yeah, like you know, you know, the yeah, black dress. I know, I know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was that, that was 2017, and like <laughs> that was so funny. I mean, yeah, because you guys asked me to come and do the thing, and that was amazing. That man. was amazing. I loved you it. Know what? That was that is definitely as a Faith Bessie, one of my favorite highlights of my Faith Bessie career was working with um Ifakasa Teletu Junior Youth on that Voices 07 competition. Um and the cool thing, I'm not sure if you guys were aware at the time, but when I came in to teach a song, I had like a, a skeletal framework of the song. And there were two songs that we were doing. So they come in, taught the bare bones of it, and then I thought, man, these guys are awesome. So I knew how much I could inject and layer in there. So every time we had rehearsals, I was always adding stuff because I was basing it on the skill level of the choir. And because he had such awesome singers and not only proficiently capable of the singing mechanically wise, but just the heart for singing. Mm -hmm. Like even with um, other groups I've worked with at the time, Tiara to Ruth at the time that I worked with you guys loved singing, you know, and I loved that. Like, you know, as if I say, that's probably the best feeling in the world is when you go to teach something and the super responsiveness of that. Mm. Epic, hey, it's like so good. Uh, 
and so um yeah i really loved that uh, and they, I still wear, I still have flashbacks of those memories of the rehearsals, of the all the all the growlings from you know, and all the other little dramas that led up to the events. And oh, can we do this? Can we do that? And I was very adamant, but no, this is a choir competition. There are no soloists. We are not doing yeah. that, you know. And then, and sure enough, eh, we get to the event. There's lots of soloists, and I know people are looking at me like, see, they got soloists. I mean, hey, yeah. it's a choir competition, okay? No, everyone, sings, <laughs> everyone sings. And I just remember um, in the heats, right? Like everyone sang quite slow songs. Yeah. And we sang the, our fast one. And then in the final, um, you know, we did our slow song and everyone did fast ones. So, yeah. yeah, it was just really interesting in terms of the song selections that we had. But I was really careful that what we were singing, it was based on ethics lyrics. Yes. Like, and that was very, I was very adamant about that, especially that first song we did of 92. I wanted yeah. to make sure this is a, this is the Efatasa song because I remember one of the choirs at the time they sang a, a Catholic song, mm. but they were Efix choir. So it was like, yeah. why did you do that? You should. <laughs> um, yeah, no. If you're if you're ripping your church, sing the songs from your church, sing the lyrics from your church, and be creative with the music side of things. So yeah, yeah. I, I my memories of that. Like I don't think like you had us hitting notes like in soprano like we thought like you we were hitting notes that we didn't even know we could hit do you know what I mean and I was just like that it was just always so exciting to be like how is she going to push us further and further and it's, it, a highlight for me that I always crack up at is and people don't know or maybe just a few is that you know the walking in song um part of it was from a Japanese song so like you know and it's so funny like Lani did it recently like maybe a few years ago with Danita and I'm like oh there's that Japanese song again and it's just um but yes this honestly you just pushed us so hard in a really just a positive way it was just the singing was it was so much fun so yeah that was definitely big side note there uh, just fond memories of um yeah just being yeah, working with you. Um, so I, you know, as we kind of like wrap this up, future aspirations, um, what, what, what is Ayono Manu going to be doing in five years' time? Um, you know, like ideally what do you want to be doing? You know, where do you see yourself in a few years? Ideally I should be relaxing um, in early retirement now. Um I reckon, yes. <laughs> uh, that's the hope, eh? Um, I would like to think that I'd still be, still be championing things for for our people and just making sure that, um, yeah, just making sure that we do our best and um, I, I'd want to still be useful um, for people and of service. I think, and I think that's something that will probably never change, but. Um, yeah, in five years' time, I want to be continuing to, to champion causes for our people. And and I want to make sure that I'm not alone. I want to have lots of people doing what I'm doing, um, you know, have a cool gang of people to make sure that, you know, there's more of us creating this groundswell. So, yeah. Um, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity soon just to offer some words of encouragement um, yeah. and drop some more gems, you know, just for any of our listeners and viewers um, who are perhaps wanting to take that next step and pursue like a career path or a dream. Um, but before we go there, I just, man, I'm so grateful 
thank you for coming into the space. Um, thank you for, for the Talanoa. Thank you for the inspiration. You continue to inspire me. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, we go way back, um, you know, and, and just keep doing what you're doing. Um, you are an amazing role model for so many of us. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get emotional. <laughs> I might, but I won't. So, you know, um, thank you again for coming coming through um, and sharing a bit of your journey. Um, I'll hand it over to you just to drop some final words. <laughs> yeah, uh, final words from me. Um, you know, at times in your life when you, you, you might second guess your purpose and your mission, and it's at those times that you need to realise if you're doubting yourself, you're on the right path. It's that indecision that should kind of push you further to go, you know what? Just get rid of that self-doubt and do it anyway. And the reason why you're kind of hindering yourself is because you might be surrounded by people that doubt you anyway. So if your circle is not helping to advance you, get rid of that circle, create a new one. Um, and surround yourself with people that will help you get to where you need to be. Um, get rid of your fake friends. If you have friends that are cheerleaders, but are only there to ride on your coattails, cut those people off as well. Um, think about the quality of your circle, not the quantity. So it's not about the amount of likes that you have. It's the amount of love that gets in your DMs from the real ones that know you from day one. Um, and just, yeah, just back yourself back yourself. If you feel that you need to speak up, use your voice. That's why it's there. Um, you need to think about all the biblical characters through history that have always been afraid to speak, but God has anointed them. God gives us the words to say. God gives us the thoughts and the feelings that will help us help and serve others. So um, it's in those moments of darkness and indecision that, that God comes through for you the most. So yeah, I always think back to the times that I've been in my most darkest um, times in those valleys and um, God's always led me back to the mountains. So, um, yeah, I don't want to get emotional either, but <laughs> yeah, um, just thank you so much, Rosa, for this opportunity and just to, to chat with you and um, just to tell you more about, you know, things you've always wanted to know, um, but never had a chance to talk about. So, yeah, it's really awesome. God bless you and, and bless all your listeners and, Man, if you're out there doing the do, keep going, keep pushing. You know, God's got you. <laughs>